This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 618, To Fear or Not to Fear. And I'm um, going to do a couple of things today. First, I'm going to share with you something from uh, Alan Cohen. And um, you may remember I interviewed Alan uh, a couple months ago. Alan is my mentor, uh, life coaching mentor, and has just become a, a really a really good friend and uh, somebody I just admire so much. He, he created a video, he put it on YouTube about a week ago in response to the coronavirus where he talks about A Course in Miracles and what A Course in Miracles can have to say about the coronavirus. And I found it, you know, it, it, was, it was a day when I was uh, experiencing a lot of anxiety myself. Um, I'm sure many of you are experiencing this as well. And listening to what Alan had to say brought me a lot of peace. And so I resolved I'm going to share this with my listeners. So I'm going to do that in a way like I do uh, where I break in every once in a while, kind of smack down style, although I'm not smacking it down. I'm smacking it up. I love it. And I'm going to sing for you. I'm going to play a little song for you. It's a Jason Mraz song. I didn't write it, but um, I'm going to sing for you. And then I'm going to include uh, the eighth episode of Infants on Thrones that was released in October of 2012. And it's about fear. And uh, it's, it's um, several different contributions. Uh, it's really nice. I like it. I like it. And so that's your episode today. I hope you guys are doing all right. Um, such a weird time that we're in. And um, I'd like to hear from you. You know, if, if you're out there and you're listening and you appreciate this and you want to give me some response, I'd love to hear it. Because um, I'm just sitting at home too, just like all of you. So, all right, here you go. An episode to fear or not to fear. Yeah. Hi, everybody. A lot of people are concerned about coronavirus, and I thought it would be really powerful to look into how A Course in Miracles would look at this experience. Lots of people say the course is really theoretical and out there and very spiritual and it's not practical. Well, guess what? <laughs> the, course, the Course in Miracles has some of the most practical advice and inspiring advice to help us deal with something that where a lot of people are facing today. So let us go back to the basic of the course. The course says that there are only two emotions, only two experiences, love and fear. If it's not fear, it's love, and if it's not love, it's fear. So what we're experiencing on a pretty much a global basis now that there are a lot, a lot, a lot of people who are really afraid about this coronavirus outbreak. And the Course also tells us that the holiest spot on earth is where an ancient hatred has become a present love. Now, fear is actually a form of hatred. It's a form of resistance and attack on God and self. You know, th this, is, this is tricky. This is tricky for me. And, and even listening back to it, because I... I, I gain, I, I really gain a lot of comfort when I listen to Alan. And I'll tell you, the very first time that I heard him, uh, I got an audio book of his and I was listening to it. And his voice bugged me because he was so like, 
he talked slower than I'm used to. He talked kind of more calm than I'm used to. And like there was just something that I was so resistant to in his calmness. But I really, I, now I find it this deep well from which to draw from for like peace. I don't know. So this is a subjective thing. I'm sharing this with you because I find peace in not only Alan's message, but in his voice and and his presentation and just the whole vibe, the Alan vibe. But what what about this idea? What do you think about this idea that there's either love or fear? It all boils down to basically these two things. Now, that might be a difficult idea to wrap your head around, and it might just seem like it's silly and stupid and maybe theoretical and not practical, and so pff, we don't need to, to even consider this. It's dumb. I've, I've had those thoughts myself when I've been engaging with A Course in Miracles, and I've been reading it now for, I don't know, not, not every day, almost every You know, it's kind of like, did you used to do scripture reading? Of course, you probably used to do scripture reading. It's kind of like scripture reading now. Uh, where I get up and I read it and I do some meditation and, you know, struggle with the ideas. And even with the stuff that we read this morning, Cammie and I, we, we, we just like, do we really, like, it seem, there's parts of it that seem kind of judgmental and I don't like that. But so let's take this idea. It, how do you feel about the idea of there just being two things, fear or love? Does that resonate to you? I mean, it, it, you have to take like a really high level view of things to generalize everything to that point of view. But it has been helpful to me to think about it that way. Um, now, when you start calling fear a hatred, I don't know, you know, it's words, man, words. Communicating with words and trying to get the definitions, like what is the right definition of the word? And I, I don't know about it. Anyway, I don't want to detract too much from what Alan's saying, but... I just want to give voice to my own skeptical thoughts that come as I'm listening to this. Despite the value that it has for me, there's still these questions and this kind of skeptical, eh, is this real, that um, I just wanted to cut in and share with. So I did. Let's go back to Alan. And so we can say that the bigger the fear, the bigger the opportunity for healing. Because when you choose love where there was fear, the transformation is far more powerful than if there had not been fear in the first place. So let us begin by reframing the coronavirus as a huge, huge global opportunity to choose love, to choose trust, to choose peace instead of fear. Now, even if lots of people on the planet are not choosing love, you and I have the power to do so. And when we do that, our effects are strong. Of course, Sosal also tells us that when you perform a miracle, i.e. when you choose love. And by the way, what is a miracle? <laughs> a Course in Miracle defines a miracle as a change in perspective. And I think every single person that's listening to this right now has experienced a change of perspective multiple times in their lives. And so there you could say it's a miracle that your perspective changed. <laughs> is is it equally as miraculous if you go from being really positive to being really negative, going from being happy to being really anxious and worried? That's a change in perspective, but maybe it's moving you further from love and closer to fear. I don't know. I don't know. 
But um, yeah, so, so when you think about a miracle, when he's talking about a miracle, he's talking about a change in perspective and specifically trying to get out of the fear elements that we're surrounded with right now with, with coronavirus and everything else that's going on. It's just so weird. And finding those opportunities for love, which I see a lot of people doing around me, and it's really, really encouraging. And so it's, it's why I'm doing this today, really. It's because I want to be part of that, pushing the message of love out as well. When you perform a miracle, i.e. when you choose love, the, the uh, effects go out like ripples. And you may touch and heal thousands of people you never hear about. And so simply by you and I choosing to remain at peace while a part of our mind would prefer fear or other people prefer fear, simply being at peace, no matter what's going on in the illusion around you, is healing to the planet. Now, of course, health agencies have prescribed many, many practical responses, wash your hands, wear a mask, don't go out in public, uh, cancel events, and all these are quite practical and certainly serve their purpose. However, you and I know that healing happens at the root more than at the symptom. I think Thoreau said, for every thousand people hacking at the branches of evil, there's one hacking at the root. So while we may be tempted to manipulate symptoms, when we go to the root of fear and heal it with love, that's a real healing. That's a healing that goes on forever, not just quarantining a particular symptom. So let's look at some of the Course lessons that address this quite directly. I just, I just love how the Course deals with this. So the Course tells us there is nothing to fear. Now, from the ego standpoint, <laughs> there is everything to fear because at every turn, there's some threat waiting you, waiting for you. And, you know, in the ego's world, if it's not one thing, it's another. You can always find something to be afraid about. You, know, you can be afraid about the government. You can be afraid about the economy. You can be afraid about pain in your body. You can be afraid about your job. You know, the moment the ego puts one fire out, another one pops up because that's the entire ego's world. The entire ego's world is about danger, threat, protection, and putting fires out. But as you well know, there's more to life than damage control. And so we have to recognize that the form that shows up that seems to require fear is just spinning around. There's, there's no end to the forms that, that seem to require fear. It's just the fear du jour. It's just the drama du jour, just the situation du jour. All right. So, okay, egos. What, what, what is an ego? And how do you really have a practical view of the world when you're talking about love and fear that, that helps you, that is practical? Uh, this question prompted me to write a little story. I'm going to read it to you right now. <laughs> Once upon a time, around 3.8 billion years ago, a single-celled organism formed on a planet that would someday be called Earth. And boom, life on this planet began. The very first domino in a chain of events that would eventually lead to this very moment and beyond. Now, this first 
single-celled organism was not the first collection of molecules that grew out of this planet. It was not the first collection of atoms or the first expression of subatomic energy. But it was the first to demonstrate the characteristics of consciousness and self-awareness that would eventually evolve to a point that upon examining itself and other forms of life around it many, 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 many years later would make distinctions that classify it as a living, sensing, evolving organism. One that is born, one that dies, one that passes its genetic information along to subsequent generations. But for now, let's just focus on this first single-celled living creature. It didn't have eyes, or ears, or a nose, not yet. But it was able to sense the environment around it, to interact with it, to bring in nutrients to help it grow, and to excrete waste that it didn't need but thankfully gave nutrients to several other things around it. And this exchange of give and take between the living organism and the environment around it started forming ecosystems to support themselves and a reliance and a network of reliance of life and death and life and death. Now what was this single-celled organism made from? It was made from energy. The same energy that makes everything else around it. This same energy that diversifies itself and expresses itself as everything that we interact with. This energy that feeds off of itself in different forms. This energy that existed before the single-celled organism and that will exist after all of the single-celled organism's progeny passes away. It is the energy that you are. But you probably don't think of yourself this way. You probably think that you are a separate, individual, mortal human being that was born and will die, and that's it. You probably relate mainly to those things that you sense through your eyes and your ears and your nose, and especially the thoughts that you think about those things that you sense. This is what's called an ego, and you are an ego, and your ego is perfect. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's a work of art as intricate and gorgeous as each individual human eye. But you are more than your ego, just like you are more than your eyes. You are eternal divine energy that cannot be harmed and cannot be destroyed. And guess what? The coronavirus is also this same energy. It's our distant, distant, distant cousin. It's intelligent. It is life doing what life does. From the perspective of the eternal energy that both we and the coronavirus are, there is no threat. There's nothing to fear. All things thrive in their season. All things dissolve back into the pure positive energy from which they initially grew. So here's a challenge for you, and for me as well. When you look at things around you, people, animals, trees, tables, cars, anything, everything, remind yourself that you're looking at another version of yourself, another expression of the divine energy that is you. And you are unique, and they are unique unique expressions of a single powerful energy field that is our entire universe and beyond. Now of course other people think different thoughts than you. They tell different stories from you. They assign different meanings to things. This is all part of the beauty of uniqueness. Try to see it through love, not fear, because there's nothing to fear. There is actually nothing. Fear. It's just the fear du jour, it's just the drama du jour, just the situation du jour. So we want to recognize, first of all, that 
the coronavirus, there's nothing unique about it. It's just another way that the ego is going booga booga. You should be afraid about this. And of course, in Miracles tells us in uh, page one that there's no order of difficulty in miracles. And the reason for that is that there's no order of reality among illusions. Let me say that again. There's no order of difficulty in miracles because there's no order of reality among illusions. But the coronavirus isn't an illusion, right? The, the people that are sick from it, the people that are dying from it, aren't an illusion. Like, does that feel insulting to you at all, to have somebody suggest that these things that are very real worries and very concerns are illusions? Like, that's not a great word to use for it. Why, why the word illusion? I mean, I think it goes... I think the answer to that question goes way back to like Hindu <laughs> uh, theology, uh, this idea of Maya, that the, the physical world is illusory, is an illusion. But, uh, you know, people have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. I think the illusion, I think the best way to think about it is recognizing that the things that we are seeing is not all there is. It's a small piece of what is going on. And so the illusion is if we think that it is everything, if we think that this, this is it, this small time, this small crisis, this pandemic that we're in um, is really going to be the end of the world or even the end of us or the end of life, the end of humanity, the end of, you know, like th that when we start getting into those fear things, I think that's the illusion where the fear is coming from. Yeah, I think even uh, and and this this is hard for people who go through uh, hardships and trials and experience the death of of loved ones or getting sick themselves. But that it's death isn't isn't a bad thing. It's a natural thing. <laughs> you know we we put this value of bad and good on it. But you know, can you can you see it that way? I don't know. I, I'm trying to see things that way. It's, it helps me when I see things this way. And I don't think that it's false. I don't think that it's untrue. So where, where to focus the attention? What stories to tell ourselves? What story for me to tell myself during this time as a practical way to move from fear into love? And by the way, I think this... I think this... <laughs> If, if I hadn't gone through my faith crisis and had to struggle with all of the things, deconstructing Mormonism, uh, the things that did work for me, the things that didn't work for me, I don't think that I'd be able to, to look at things the way that I'm looking at. So I, I, I'm saying that as a way to show gratitude for my Mormon upbringing. And also I'm, I'm aware that there are people who listen to this many, many more than I'm aware because I hear from you every once in a while and it surprises me when I do. Many who are still attending church, who are in uh, mixed faith marriages, mixed faith relationships, you have children, you have a spouse who you care about, a partner that you care about, but your views have changed. I, I think the lessons that can be learned from this coronavirus and other things can be applied to those areas as well. The the fears that you have of not being on the same page with the spouse or not being valued because they think that you're going off the deep end or maybe they're in a lot of fear or maybe you're in a lot of fear. I think being able to see them as different expressions of yourself 
and find the area of common belief, uh, find the area of, of common existence, common values, and the love, like leaning more into love, definitely going into love rather than into fear of the differences, the fear of the stories that aren't true, the fear of the abuse that's done. Um, you know, it's not saying that those things aren't there, but that there's love <laughs> going into love. I don't know. Ramble, ramble, ramble. I, I This might be the last time I break in because it's really Alan's words here that I just found so inspiring that I want to share with you. So I'm going to go back to Alan for a while. So whether it's a big scary illusion like coronavirus or you have a cut on your hand or your, your husband didn't pay attention to you today, or your kid is acting out or you didn't get your full paycheck, those are all, they all seem to be various degrees or hierarchies of things to be afraid about, but the course is they're all part of the dream. That if you're in a dream, whether you're being chased by one bear or a hundred bears, it doesn't matter because it's all a dream. So we want to not give the coronavirus any more attention than we would anything that would seem to cause fear. And the only answer to fear is faith. And there's a wonderful old poem I love, it goes, Fear knocked at the door, faith answered, and no one was there. So what you can do is quit focusing on the scary thing. Begin to withdraw your attention to all the scary talk about the virus. And God knows, well, God doesn't know, people know. God, God's not aware of it, but we are that there sure is a lot of scary news about it and people talking about disastrous effects and implications. And if you sit there and watch your TV or scan your web browser or engage in gossip or talk about it, you're not, you're not helping unless you're talking about it in a way that reframes it as an opportunity for healing. So you don't have to watch every newscast. You don't have to discuss every aspect of it. The more attention you give fear, the more power that fear has over you. And one of my favorite Star Trek television episodes was about a time when uh, some malevolent force invaded the Starship Enterprise. And it was taking people over and they were going crazy and hurting each other and fighting. And there was, there was mass chaos and pandemonium on the Enterprise. Now, if that sounds familiar in terms of what's happening at your local Walmart, you may want to pay attention to this, this Star Trek episode. Well, what they discovered was that this, this dark force was actually feeding on fear. And the more the crew got afraid, the, the bigger the, this dark force got, the fatter it got. And, and the, the, more the, the more the dark force became powerful, the more people act on it. So there's a vicious cycle of fear acting on fear, fear acting on fear. So it's growing, growing, growing. Well, finally, the uh, supervisors of the enterprise realized that if they could just get people to quit being afraid, then that would be the end of this problem. So they administered a relaxation serum. So I'm not suggesting to take drugs, but I think it's a metaphor that when they when the crew got relaxed and quit being afraid this dark entity had nothing to feed on and it starved it they starved it and so the entity had to depart and the enterprise was returned to sanity 
So if there's a physical virus, that's one thing. Okay, we'll say that could be a problem. However, the fear factor is a far bigger problem. A number of people have gotten the coronavirus, but a lot, 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 lot more are contributing fear to the, to the situation. And we know that whenever you act on fear, nothing really good happens. That you always have to come back and choose once again and choose love where at some point you chose fear. So we come back to the same lesson that it's uh, quit contributing fear to it. Now I realize that a lot of you as core students, perhaps as spiritual students, may feel uh, pretty relaxed about it or have found your center of faith even amidst the insanity, but you can be a light to other people. And if you simply choose not to agree with them and support them to relax and have faith and trust, then you're going to be helpful. Let's see what else the Course says about it. So the Course also says in Lesson 240 that fear is not justified in any form. And once again, the ego would say that this form of fear is more justifiable than another, but it's not. It's not. So we don't want to give any undue power to any particular fear because it's all fear. It's just little variations on fear jumping around. If we can't get you from this side, we get you from this side. We can't get you from this side, we get you this side. So, so the really the 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 virus is not so much the enemy as fear is. Now, the Holy Spirit would not consider fear really an enemy because the Holy Spirit doesn't give any credence to fear. The Holy Spirit doesn't go into fear. But it's really fear we're dealing with even more than the virus. Of course, he also asks us to remember, I am in danger nowhere in the world. That's a really good one, isn't it? I'm in danger nowhere in the world. And so wherever you may go, wherever you are, God walks with you. Of course, also tells us, if you knew who walks beside you on the path that you have chosen, fear would be impossible. So is God with us even while this coronavirus seems to be going on? Yes. Is God supporting us? Yes. Is God comforting us? Yes. Is God loving us? Yes. Is God more powerful than coronavirus? Absolutely. Is God more powerful than fear? Absolutely. So I think Emmett Fox said, don't think about the problem, think about God. And now I know that for many of us, even the word God can be a problem. I'm working my way out of that <laughs> to where... The, the, the word God is a placeholder for everything, for this divine energy, for whatever, just the unknown, the great unknown, the great wholeness, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I still have those kind of uh, gag reflex, I got to admit, when I hear uh, Alan talk about God the way that he does. It's part of his uniqueness that's different from me, <laughs> right? Uh, and I get it. I mean, I can... I can I, I can find a common ground there in that word, but um, if you can't, um, I, get, I get that and I respect that. And, uh, you know, it's fine. So every time we're tempted to go into fear about the virus or anything, 
ask yourself, what would the voice of love say? And this is a, a, a technique I teach in my coach training, that whenever you're afraid, ask yourself, what does the voice of fear say? And bring it to light. Don't try to hide it. Don't deny it. This is what I'm afraid about. And then the next question is, well, what would the voice of love say in response? Voice of love always says, I'm safe. I'm whole. I live in a benevolent universe. I'm not alone. All's well. Wake up, everyone. How can you sleep at a time like this unless the dreamer is the real you? Listen to your voice, the one that tells you to taste past the tip of your tongue. Leap and the net will appear. I don't want to wait before the dream is over. I'm gonna make it mine this time. I'll own it. I'm gonna make it mine. Yes, I'll make it all. Keep my life on a heavy rotation Requesting that it's lifting you up, up, up and away And over to a table at the Gratitude Cafe I am finally there And all the angels got me singing It was a normal night, just like any other night. I was 16 years old, a priest in the Aaronic priesthood. In a few short years, I would become a missionary, venturing out to the front lines 
a valiant soldier in the great cosmic war against Satan and his demon hordes. My bedroom was in the basement. I slept in a twin bed that faced a large sunken window well. It was meant to be a fire escape, but I often used it to sneak out at night to go teepeeing with my friends. At least until I saw the Black Widow spider webs and decided it was just too risky. Because, you know, Black Widow spiders can be silent but deadly. You know what else is silent but deadly? A scorpion. So I stripped down to my BVDs, knelt over my pillow, and offered up my nightly prayers. Ever since I turned 12 and had been given the Aaronic Priesthood, I'd been secretly praying for the ministering of angels. You know, the Doctrine and Covenant said that I could have one, if I was worthy, and Joseph Smith had had one when he was a kid, so why couldn't I? I said amen and turned on my radio. You know, I liked listening to music as I fell asleep. K-Light 98.7 FM, an embarrassing collection of soft rock ballads, so I'd be sung to sleep every night by the likes of Roberta Flack, Barry Manilow, or Cool and the Gang. And maybe it was nerdy, but it was also relaxing. But this night, something happened that I'll never forget. Something strange. Something dark. Something that showed me firsthand how very real the adversary can be. I was nearly asleep when a song started playing that just didn't belong on K-Life. It was Highway to Hell by ACDC. At first, I just tried to ignore it, but it kept getting louder and louder. So I reached over and I hit the snooze bar, and that would normally shut it off, but this time it didn't. So I hit it again and again, still nothing. So I sat up and I leaned over to reach for the dial and I turned it to make sure it was off. And it was, but the music still kept on playing. So I leaned over and strained to unplug the whole thing from the wall and sure enough the power shut off, but the song kept on playing. It was, it was fainter than it had been, but it was still there, I could still hear it. And that was when I felt this tingle that starts up the back of your spine and just instantly fills your whole body. It was fear. Terrifying, paralyzing fear. Now, I'd heard of this sort of thing before. You know, my dad had been attacked by a paralyzing darkness when he was on his mission. And my seminary teacher told me the story of a demon that he saw one night when he was a kid looking at a Playboy magazine. And, of course, we all know what happened to Joseph Smith as he was starting to pray in the sacred grove. The devil is alive and well and actively trying to thwart the progress of God. And he knew that I was destined for missionary greatness. And he hadn't been able to trip me up in any of the typical deviant teenage ways, so he was taking a more direct approach. So I prayed. And I pleaded with the Lord to save me from whatever evil was in the room and to please make the music stop. But it didn't, not until the song finally reached its end. So there I was, in total silence, alone in my bed, surrounded by this thick, palpable darkness. But that was nothing compared to what was about to happen next. It still gives me chills to even think about it, and I really don't even like talking about it. But... Laying there, alone in the darkness, I heard a voice. It was clear and as real 
is the voice that you're hearing from me right now. And it said my name. Glenn. A chill shot right through me. Was this real? Was someone actually in my room? Was I just making it up? Were these voices in my head? And then I heard it again. Glenn. I sat up and I flipped on the lights. Standing at the far end of my room, right in front of my window, was a man. He had light hair and blue eyes, and if I had this skill, I could sketch him to the smallest detail, even to this day. And he was smiling at me. Don't be afraid, he said. The Lord has heard your prayers and has sent me to minister unto you. And he smiled again. He extended his arms as if he knew that this was the fulfillment of everything I'd ever wished for. But something about it just didn't feel right. You know, I was still feeling that cold, tingling fear and not the warm, reassuring calm that you'd expect from a ministering angel. And I immediately remembered a scripture from the DNC, these three grand keys that Joseph Smith had given, how to discern a good angel from an evil one. I needed to ask to shake his hand, because if he's from God, and if he's a resurrected being, then I'll feel the solid flesh and I'll know. Or, if he's from God, but he hasn't been resurrected, he'll just politely decline and then deliver his message anyway. But if he's an evil spirit, he'll attempt to deceive me and he'll reach out with his hand and I'll take it, and I'll feel nothing. The thought terrified me, but okay, that's what I've got to do. That's how I can know for sure. So I tried to keep my voice as calm and steady as possible, and I asked, could I shake your hand? And he smiled again like he'd heard this question a million times before. Of course, he said, and he moved towards me. And I remember he didn't walk, you know, he didn't move his legs. He just, he just moved. And then he was right there, right in front of me. His arm was extended and he was still smiling. And my heart was just pounding. And I steadied my hand as best as I could. And I reached up and I grabbed onto his hand and nothing. And this instant jolt of terror just shot through me. And then I knew what I had to do. I slowly began raising my arm to the square. He looked at me as if he'd seen this a million times before, too. And before I could even utter a single syllable, his entire countenance just changed. Like, instead of the bright, pleasant, light-haired man who had first appeared, his face transformed into this angry, twisted, evil snarl. I quickly said what I had to say, using all of my power to keep the words from sticking in my throat. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave. And immediately, he was hit by what seemed like some kind of vacuum that grabbed a hold of him from behind and started dragging him back towards my window. He fought against it, and he shrieked the most awful shriek I'd ever heard. It was just like they say in the scriptures, a wailing and gnashing of teeth. And he was cursing me the entire time. You think you've defeated me? You'll never be free of me. We're all around you. We'll always be with you. We know exactly how to get you. And then with that, he was gone, and I was left alone, completely freaked out of my mind. And that was by far the most terrifying night of my life. Except uh, that it actually wasn't. Because, well, this never actually happened. 
I mean, I told people this story, all right. I told a lot of people. And many of them believed it. You know, why wouldn't they? It hit all the expected narrative conventions for a story like this. And more importantly, it supported their Mormon worldview. It validated their beliefs. (laughs) One friend of mine actually shared it with investigators on his mission as evidence that this work was true. And when he got back and I told him it wasn't true, he's like, what? I told everybody that story. But I just made it up. And the reason why I made it up, now it seems so stupid and trivial, but I had this friend, Kevin Sparks, and he would listen to heavy metal music, and I thought this was just soul-numbing devil music, and I wanted him to stop. So I made up this story because I was trying to scare him straight. And ironically enough, of all the people that I told the story to, Kevin was the one to call bullshit right off the bat. Knock it off, he said. I kept telling it to other people, though, because I liked the effect that it had on them. I could see their response. I could feel it. And it gave me this sort of power over them, at least the ones who really believed it. And that power, it was pretty addicting. Now, I remember the last time that I ever told it. (laughs) This time really scared me. So I was a freshman at BYU, And I'd gone up into the canyon with a big group of people I didn't really know. And we were gathered around a campfire telling scary stories. And I was just waiting because I knew I had them all beat. So I just waited my turn and then I started up. It was a normal night, just like any other night. It was totally silent as I told it. Everyone was staring at me with their eyes wide. It was probably my best performance ever. (laughs) And a little while after I finished, this guy came up to me, and he shook my hand, and there were tears in his eyes. And he said, I just want you to know that you were inspired to share that sacred experience with us tonight. Uh, sacred? Um, inspired? As in, this huge lie that I made up was something that he thought was a message directed to him through me from God? Oh, crap. (laughs) So he went on to tell me that he'd recently decided not to go on a mission. And what's worse, he'd come up to the canyon that night with his girlfriend and the back of his truck and just one sleeping bag because they were planning, you know, to do it. But when he heard my story, he realized what a terrible mistake he was about to make. He realized all the many different ways that the devil was trying to destroy him. And he felt the spirit so strong confirmed to him that he needed to change his ways. The guy actually started crying and he hugged me and he thanked me. And even though I guess I should have been sort of happy for this seminary video-esque return and sin no more CTR moment, I actually just felt like crap. I learned two very valuable life-altering lessons that night. First, the spirit, and can you hear my air quotes? can confirm the truthfulness of even the biggest smoking pile of horseshit. Second, fear can be a powerful motivator. Fear sucks. I really sort of hate fear. Now, I suppose there's some intrinsic evolutionary value to fear in the sense of self-preservation, you know, in the sense of avoiding life's black widow spiders and other silent but deadly things. But to me... Fear's like a cancer weed. 
it's just far too easy to take root and spread and grow and just completely take over, just blocking us from so many important experiences in life. Have any of you seen the movie Defending Your Life? There's this scene where Al Brooks is sitting across from Rip Torn, and Al Brooks has just died, and he's awaiting some kind of judgment. So, is this what you thought it would be? Thought what would be? Where am I? Is this heaven? No, it isn't heaven. Is it hell? No, it isn't hell either. Let me tell you what's going on. When you're born into this universe, you're in it for a long, long time. You have many different lifetimes. And after each lifetime, there's an examining period which you're in now. Every second of every lifetime is always recorded. And as each one ends, we sort of look at it. Look at a few of the days, examine it. And then if everybody agrees, you move forward. What do you mean move forward? I mean move forward, continue onward. The point of this whole thing is to keep getting smarter, to, to keep growing, to use as much of your brain as possible. For example, I use 48% of my brain. Do you know how much you use? 47? <laughs> three. I'm sorry? Three. I use 3% of my brain? Yes, don't worry about it. Everybody on Earth uses 3% of their brain. 3 to 5%. That's why they're there. 3? 3%? 3%? You mean nobody on Earth uses more than that? When you use more than 5% of your brain, you don't want to be on Earth, believe me. Now... Being from Earth as you are and using as little of your brain as you do, your life has pretty much been devoted to dealing with fear. It has? Well, everybody on Earth deals with fear. That's what little brains do. What are little brains? That's what we call you folks behind your back. Fear is like a giant fog. It sits on your brain and blocks everything. Real feelings, true happiness, real joy. They can't get through that fog. But you lift it, and buddy, you're in for the ride of your life. God, my 3% is swimming. I don't think I can express it any better than that. Fear is what keeps little brains little. Fear just sucks. Now, I often heard growing up in the church that faith is the opposite of fear. That our faith in the atonement would overcome any fear that we might have about anything that happens to us in our lives. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? And yet so many experiences in the church seem to be driven by that very fear that we're supposed to have been freed from. Like, what if I don't magnify my callings? Or what if other people see my faults? Or what if I don't live up to every covenant that I have made in the temple or anywhere else? What if I'm just unworthy? I really hate that word, unworthy. It means not worthy. I mean, think about it. It means you have no worth. It means you're worthless. How would it change things in the church if instead of people saying something like, he's not worthy to go to the temple, if we said, he can't go to the temple because he's worthless? Because isn't that basically saying the same thing? And this fear of being worthless gets drilled into us from such a young age. And once it's there, this fear of being worthless can be exploited and abused. And it happens far too often. That's true whether you're in the church or out of it, whether people are meaning to do it or not, whether the object of these fears is real or just a huge smoking pile of horseshit. You may even use fear tactics to manipulate people that you love because it's easy and it's incredibly effective because fear makes people do things that they normally wouldn't do. Fear keeps people stuck in abusive and codependent relationships 
Fear keeps people from experiencing life, from taking risks and making mistakes and getting up and trying all over again. Fear makes people shut down governments and hate Obama. Fear prevents progress. Fear is damnation. So at this wonderful time of Halloween, when we celebrate all the hauntingly superficial thrills that tricks and treats and fear can bring, remember how much fear actually sucks. Remember how pervasive and subtle and sneaky and damaging it can be. And take a moment to look around at the people you love. Look at the way you interact with them, at the way you interact even with yourself. And if you're exploiting a sense of worthlessness or using any kind of fear tactics to try to control or manipulate behavior, knock it off or else. And these things I humbly say in the name of Skeleton Jack. Boo. Take one. <laughs> Good evening. It's that time of year. Halloween. And all the world comes together to celebrate a common human emotion, fear. 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 So here at Infants on Thrones, we thought we would share with you some of the things that have scared the bejesus out of us over the years. Things like... Something has actually come into the room and physically sat on my chest. Like little goblin things. Horrible little things. <laughs> and this... I think superstitions are there for a reason. And maybe to stay away from certain things, there's some, maybe some good reasons to do that. <laughs> and this... There is actually something that hunts us in our dreams. So sit back, turn out the lights, and get ready to feel like a kid again. Because maybe, just maybe, the boogeyman really is coming to get you. Thank you. It's horrible. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are the core. Hello and welcome to Infants on Thrones. This is Glenn, and today along with Matt, Randy, and Jesse, you'll be hearing from many people who shared many fearful experiences with us, more than we could actually use. So let's kick it over to Matt as he tells us about his first great fear, the Ouija board. So when I started thinking about fear and supernatural experiences, one of the first things I thought about was the Ouija board. What better way to have a supernatural experience than to call it out from something distributed by Hasbro? Now, I had some experience with a Ouija board. When I was a kid, I remember being scared of the movie Witchboard, but that might have just been Tawny Catan. I even played one once, but that amounted to a group of horny 8th graders asking it who liked us and whether or not one of the guys would get lucky. So I planned a little Ouija board party, but getting this together was a little more difficult than I originally thought it would be. We had plenty of volunteers to play, but nobody was willing to host. Just so you know, that's how my wife started the conversation. Just so you know, conversations never end up where you want them to. Just so you know, she began, you aren't doing that Ouija board thing here, she continued. I laughed. I really assumed she was just playing a part, giving me some material for the podcast. She wasn't. 
Just so you know, I responded, they aren't real. I was very pleased with myself. I felt like Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction with the ultimate retort. Just so you know, she replied, I don't care, you're not doing it. And with that, she had won, just so you know. There's no arguing with logic like that. A friend volunteered his house, but his wife put a stop to that too. So it seemed we were doomed to never even do this party. The fear of the Ouija board was going to prevent us from exploring why people are afraid of Ouija boards. <laughs> Fortunately, my wife compromised. We could host, but all paranormal activity had to take place outside. So that's what we did. So what happened when a group of adults got together and tried to take it seriously? Before we answer that, here are some of my friends and their reasons for wanting to come to a Ouija board night. Hi, I'm Becky Watson. Um, I had some experience with Ouija board as a preteen, so I thought it'd be kind of fun to see what we have going on now. I'm Paul Watson. I've had a zero exp- experience with Ouija boards, but I've had a lot of interest in the occult, and I've actually dealt with some witches. Me too, my friend. I've, Me yeah. too. <laughs> now I, I'm a, a mentalist and a hypnotherapist, hypnotist. Hi, my name is Micah Nicolaisen. I'm here just mostly out of curiosity because, you know, like people have already said, we're, uh, you know, I grew up in the church as a Mormon and you know, the Ouija board is like one of those taboo things that you don't do, and you always hear those uh, those sort of mythological experiences where Satan appears. And I was just going to make an anal sex joke. Anytime somebody says taboo, I just go right to anal sex. <laughs> Ouija board, <laughs> anal sex, they're all taboo. Nice. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm here just out of curiosity as well. And to be a bad girl, I mean, I heard all the stories growing up. Ooh, yeah, my mom was terrible. Are we back to anal sex or? No. Oh. <laughs> My mother was terrified of me. See, it's stuff like this that Glenn gets so upset at me Sorry, with. Glenn. I'm Tanya Francis. Um, I'm here mostly out of curiosity, too. My, my mother told me some really frightening stories as a kid, and many trepidation I have is that I'm going to psych myself out when I go home tonight. So <laughs> that's all. <laughs> so are you a little nervous? A little bit, just, just because. Is it the candles? No, no. <laughs> is it my anal sex jokes? <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> That's fair. That's absolutely fair. I am Heather Borrego. I've done quite a bit of this, actually. Embarrassing, kind of. I actually do believe in this quite a bit. If you, coming for me, it's odd, but if everybody's serious about it. I'm Dave Borrego. I come from a long line of uh, family in the occult. My uncle, Alistair Crowley. Uh, <laughs> great uncle. A song wrote, written about him. No, I'm just kidding. Mr. Crowley, anybody know that's? But no, it, it's always been a fascination to me. So it, tonight, it's it's a curiosity, and I'm just trying to come to, to a conclusion for myself whether this is real or not. And I, I really haven't thought about it a whole lot. My name is Todd Miller, and I grew up as a Mormon, and always been scared of the Ouija board. I always heard bad things, but I really don't believe in all that, and I'm here to try it out. I'm Sandy Miller, and I grew up in a basically atheist family who always played with the Ouija board and had seances. My name is Jamie Hollowell, and um, the only 
the only time I have anything with a Ouija board is I remember growing up once I saw it on TV and thought, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and um, then I learned it was wrong. So, you know, um, this is wrong. Uh, you mean like bad, like taboo? Right. Yeah. Well, not even ta- taboo, like, but like wrong, anal like. Sex. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember having this curiosity about it and really wanting to try it, but that it was evil and so that I couldn't do it because it wouldn't be safe to do it. Wait, which one are we talking about? <laughs> you are, and you encouraged him, wasn't you? <laughs> Luigi? Uh, Troy Hollowell. Um, uh, I believe I know how Ouija boards work, and I don't believe they're magical or spiritual, but I think they're very uh, revelatory. Curiosity, fascination, skepticism, arrogance, and past experiences all brought us together to see what the Ouija was all about. To prepare us, we figured we should invite the proper spirit by talking about experiences we had with the Ouija board or stories we had heard about people using Ouija boards. I played with the Ouija board when I was probably 11 with some friends over at the friend's house, knew that Technically, I was told I shouldn't mess around with them, but we goofed off with it, and I never had any trouble with them. When I was <laughs> younger, preteen, um, we did actually seances. The candles would blow out, a knife flew across the room. So we had some serious situations. Um, it was a slumber party, mm-hmm. and so we decided to do a seance, and like light as a feather, straight as a board, and you know, just all those fun little quirky games that, but it got serious and it was extremely frightening. And her mom came running out, and so um, she was okay with it, but she, you know, told us how that we shouldn't do that. So, and then with the Ouija board, when I was 19, my friend and I decided to do a Ouija board. We asked it some pretty like direct questions and Actually, now looking back, some of those things actually did come true. One being, I had just started dating a guy. It knew his name was Bob, and it knew that I was going to marry him and that we would be together um, like a total of five years. And, excuse me, and that's exactly what happened. Um, It did say that he was going to be a police officer and that he was going to die in the line of duty. He was a Marine, and he never did die so I don't know if it's, like, subconscious that it happened like that, or I don't, I don't know. But I, I totally believe in it, especially that subconscious knife flying across the room. That was, that was truer and realer than anything I've ever seen. Yeah, I, my mom was very into the Ouija board, and she, I remember in fourth grade we were playing with it, and she asked who, who I liked. Did I have a crush? And it betrayed me. It totally spelled out Joey Sellers. And he was a new kid, too, so I don't, I don't know how... I don't think she could have known. I don't know. Who knows? Your mom and you both were holding it? Yes. We were on either side of the, the board. Yes. And I, but, you know, East Coast thing. I grew up where Heather grew up in Virginia. And it was a very big thing in Northern Virginia. Everyone had seances growing up. Um, we brought back John Lennon after he died. <laughs> we totally. How was he doing? Um, he was a he was really peaceful man. He was, yeah. It was good. We were calling forth his spirit, and similar to Heather's, the, the candle went out. 
this antique phone in the basement rang once and all the lights went out, like to the point where her dad had to flip the breaker. So coincidence or funky spiritual shit. Has anyone heard any Ouija board legends or stories growing up to cause you to be scared? Uh, and that's Paul. Yes, this is Paul. A companion of mine when he was, uh, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And he was going over to a friend's party, and they were playing with it. And as soon as he walked in, it stopped working. And he said that was because he had the priesthood. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So this was, this was a first-person story that he said this happened to him. He walked in. Yes, it, it, was, it stopped, and they all looked at him, and they knew. I think most of them weren't LDS, and he was not into that at all. And so when he came in, it stopped working completely, and they... Looked at him and yeah, yeah. They couldn't feel the vibe anymore because of the priesthood. The uh, priesthood story is one that I've heard too. Is that a, a guy who's getting ready to go on their mission comes in and the Ouija board stops? But the way I heard it was once he leaves, they ask the board, "Where'd you go?" And it spelled out priesthood. Scared. <laughs> no, I just got, you are you? Can, I just got. I just got goosebumps when I told that story. That's what I was going to say. If you, if you didn't feel goosebumps during that story, then you weren't properly conditioned as a Mormon. Because that's a result of that Mormon conditioning that's, that's going to be with you the rest of your life. Did you, did you feel goosebumps? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I don't believe it a bit, but I felt goosebumps. The spirit testified to me. Tanya, you have one? Oh, actually, it's not that much. Um, my mom... Uh, my mom and her friends, when she was a teenager, went out to this abandoned old house in Pima, Arizona. And Nothing good happens in Pima, Arizona. Nothing good happens in Pima, Arizona. That's right. <laughs> Tasty freeze, yeah. And, um, and so they, they were playing with a Ouija board. And I don't remember all the details, but uh, they were asking this thing, you know, questions, and it was answering pretty accurately. And then they asked something about, where are you? And it said, here. And scared the hell out of her. I don't know. The way she told it, it always scared me, and, and I just, it just had, like, these lasting echoes on me, you know, so. Let me tell you my ultimate Ouija board story that scared, I mean, it scared me to my bone, and I don't remember when I heard it, but I remember retelling it on my mission and just really getting a freaky feeling, so. Maybe bones told. or bone? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> what I was a freaky feeling on his mission. <laughs> what were you asking? <laughs> the story was that you never t ask serious questions, just like you were saying, when are you going to die or those types of things. But I heard a story about a group of kids who decided to ult ask it the ultimate question. Is the church true? <laughs> Cutting to the chase, what everyone wanted to know. And the story was the kid or the two kids that were in there it went black, and they got attacked and came out, and there was a singe mark, a hand mark, like a burn mark of, of a hand on the, one of the kids' thighs. And the, what they theorized was that they were too close to the truth and that they asked the ultimate question of that Satan or, or spirits can't lie. And so it had to, was going to tell the kids yes, but instead of telling yes, it lashed out and attacked these kids. I know, right? Did you? The father of all lies can't lie. 
But regardless, this is something that's ingrained, ingrained in not just Mormon culture, but I think everybody's culture, movies, everything else kind of in, in, in culture uh, has people scared of this to the point where they don't sell this uh, in a lot of places. So I tried to find this board for this night, and I went to Walmart. They don't have it. Uh, apparently, they did at one point, and they stopped selling it. Went to Target. They didn't have it. Isn't it like Hasbro or... I mean, seriously, how could they make something so evil? They make, you know, little baby toys. They do it's... make Monopoly, too. Toys R Us does still sell it. Is that where you got it? Yeah. No, actually, I decided to go to the most evil of all evil places in the world, Craigslist. That's good. Yeah. Craigslist. Yeah, so this is actually a used Ouija board that has, yeah, some other people's juju on it. So there's missed encounters? Could be. And I... and. And I won't, I won't reveal, but I did ask the lady, got her, I have her on tape talking about her experiences with it, and I don't really want to share it right now. Hi, sorry for making you wait. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Is this for you? Uh, no, we're actually, you want to know what we're, I'm doing a podcast about uh, Ouija boards. Are you really? Yeah, I do a, uh, oh, how funny. a podcast, so I'm trying to find, find the, yeah, it's, that's two pieces, that's pretty yep. much it. Everything's in there. So, do you got any great stories for me about you know why you're getting rid of it because you were so well, so I concerned? Got it, I got it for my teenager, my teenage granddaughters, and their moms were like, mm, "I don't think so." But I had one when I was a teenager. Yeah. We used to at our sleepovers yeah. and slumber parties. We used to do them all the time. You got any good experiences from when you did them when you were a kid? Um, no, but we used to just ask. Like, you know how you are when you're in high school. You're like, yeah. "What boy likes me?" <laughs> and, you know that kind of stuff. But you know, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm glad it was still still available, and I'm glad. Oh, yeah. we'll, we'll bring all the evil spirits to our house then. All right then. You've they're, you've been you know you've been what? okay so far. People are like creepy about it. Yeah. They're just it's a teenage it's fun. fun thing, and they're fun for like I said, we did it all the time. Right. Yeah. I probably got mine when I was probably 13. We did them all the way for probably five years. When we had sleepovers with our girlfriends yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Bring the Ouija board. Bring the Ouija board. I'm like, okay. That was great. Yeah. We had a great time with it. Yeah. So. Thank you. Well, Thank so, you. so your grand, your daughter didn't want your grand, your granddaughter to Her have mother's it? kind of religious. Uh-huh. So not my, it's my stepdaughter's, my husband's daughter, but her mother's kind of creepy about yeah. it. So she's like, I don't want to put her off or anything. So I'm like, okay. So do you think that's kind of the, the thing is the religious people are more concerned? Oh, yeah. With them? I don't think it's witchcraft. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's, it's just a teenager thing. Yeah. Well, that's one perspective. But not everybody feels that way. In fact, a couple of friends who heard about the Ouija board night wanted nothing to do with it. But they were willing to be interviewed about why. This is Jody. Jody Goodman of Mesa, Arizona, and I'm friends with Matt and the whole Ouija board crew. And Ouija board scared the bejesus out of her. The Ouija board has always scared me. I've never played with one. I've been invited to a couple, you know, slumber parties when I was a young girl, to, when I knew they were playing with those, and I always stayed away, always. Instantly, I knew I didn't want to go, and I actually questioned your guys' sanity for wanting to do it. And as I began to think about it more, I wondered if um, this group was going in the wrong direction. It's like, like we are in Satan's grasp or something. Kind of. I think a lot of times um, people want to show how fearless they are or how they don't believe in superstitions. But I think superstitions are there for a reason. And, you know, traditions 
maybe to stay away from certain things, there's some, maybe some good reasons to do that, follow that advice. Now, before we're too tough on Jody, keep in mind, she represents the attitude of a lot of people out there, your friends, family, and maybe even some of you. She said something that a lot of people might believe, that playing with things like this, Ouija board, tarot cards, seances, opens the door to the other side and invites that spirit into one's life. So I asked her where that fear comes from. I'm not sure. I know, like I said, there's been slumber parties. I think I did at one point my cousins next door when I was growing up would do a weird thing where we would go into the bathroom, turn off the lights and chant Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary lots of times. I think that game's called Bloody Mary. Okay. And wait for her to appear in the mirror. Which are delicious, by the way. Okay. So, and I think I saw something at that point. And I, you know, just the movies I've seen, like one movie comes to mind, The Skeleton Key, where um, the lead character never quite believes. And then slowly but surely, as different events happen, she becomes a believer. And the premise of that movie was the voodoo can only work if the person, it's, it, you know, the subject of it is a believer. If you don't believe in it, it won't work on you. But the minute you cross over to where now you're a believer in the dark magic or the dark arts, then that's the power. And so I guess the fear would be kind of along that plot line is something would happen with the Ouija board or the tarot cards or something that would make me slowly maybe give more value to it and then, you know, maybe give more power to, to that side, that side, that side. Despite Jody's warnings and concerns, we approached the other side with a board. Almost everyone took a turn. We asked the board about the nature of God and evil. We asked religious questions and questions about the universe. We asked about relatives that were dead and asked whether someone would have kids in the future or be successful in their new job. We even asked it who would win the upcoming presidential election. By the way, the answer is the Mormon. The Mormon will win the election, at least according to the Ouija board. But the questions and the answers aren't really as important as what the people present were experiencing, the fear that they were feeling, the fear of using a board that might just be a conduit to the other side. But what happens when the spirit comes out of the board and into the bedroom? first time it happened, I, w I was aware of the fact that I'd woken up and I felt fully alert as if I was, um, as if there was something, some kind of danger. My skin was covered in goosebumps. And sometimes I've actually had like hallucinations where it's actually been, something has actually come into the room and physically sat on my chest, like little goblin things, horrible little things. really really scary I mean it sounds ridiculous but um, while it's happening to you you really do fear for your life this clip comes from a production by Discovery World and these little goblins have been described as a number of different things over the ages in Persian culture they're called Bakhtak an evil ghost that torments you at night in India she's the Mohini a beautiful but deadly enchantress in Slavic cultures, he's an elf-like gypsy man with wild glowing eyes who sits on your chest riding you like a horse. 
In Chinese culture, it's pinyin gui ashen, or something like that. It means the ghost pressing on bed. And in Old English, she was called mar, which is why today we have the term nightmare. These are all examples of the type of visions that people see during a condition called sleep paralysis. And sleep paralysis is a very real human condition that produces very real fear. What varies from culture to culture is the way that this experience is understood. Yeah, this is Chet. I'm from Salt Lake City. Yeah, I've had, uh, I've definitely had my fair share of experiences. One happened to me last night, actually. <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night, and I looked over towards our closet, and I could see the shape of this freaky-looking clown hovering in the doorway of the closet. And I rattled my head, and I think, no, it's not there. You're just, you're just ridiculous. You know, you're tired. And I kind of try to gather myself, and I look over there again, and it's still there. And then I start to think about it more. I'm like, okay, this is just ridiculous. It's not there. You're messing with yourself. Wake up, look again, and it's going to be gone. And I look again a third time, and it's there. <laughs> so I roll over and, you know, put my head in my pillow, and I just make myself go to sleep. And then I wake up the next morning, and I'm like, that really happened. Chet believes that he was conditioned to see these kinds of night terrors because of stories that he heard as a child at church. And it's really odd because you look back and you think, what were these young young men and young women's leaders thinking? But, you know, back in the 80s, early 80s especially, so I, this was right when I came into, you know, right when I, about when I was 12 years old and just entering into, you know, in our religion, at 12 years old, you become part of the youth program. And then you get to go to firesides. And a fireside is when the youth gather and a speaker comes. It's like a devotional type meeting. Well, anyway, these youth leaders organized a meeting up in this mountain canyon for when it would be dark. And coincidentally, the location of the fireside was at a place called Devil's Gate. And they invited a speaker that was going that came to speak about the dangers of Satan, you know, and and the influences of Satan and his ability to not only tempt a person but literally possess. And you know, he talked specifically about the dark kind of sides of, of you know Satan. I guess is the best way to put it. So yeah, you look back and you think, how crazy was this? I don't know how crazy it is. It's certainly pretty common. And more often than not, it functions to validate belief. So I really was attributing it to, okay, Satan's trying to get a grasp on me somehow. It, it just solidified that for me. I was, you know, I was convinced that, okay, this is a good example of, you know, you mess with, you, you play with fire, you're going to get burned. These experiences are so real and intense that they even make an impact on people who aren't even believers anymore. My name is Seth Lake. Yes, as a matter of fact, at BYU, I was attacked by evil spirits at least a couple of times. Uh, I remember specifically I was lying in my bed in Deseret Towers, and I woke up feeling like there was something on my chest. And I opened my eyes and looked, and I saw this evil spirit like sitting on me, like hugging me, squishing me. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. 
I felt very much like Joseph Smith described in his first vision where he was overtaken by darkness and he, and he couldn't speak out. When you're being attacked by an evil spirit, they say, you know, the training kicks in, like in the military. When you get in combat, the training just kicks in. Well, when you're in combat with evil spirits, the Mormon training kicks in. And I just thought, oh, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, save me, that kind of a thing. And sure enough, within a few seconds, uh, it cleared up and the evil spirit left and I was able to get up and obviously I had a hard time going back to sleep after that because I was pretty freaked. And the thing about fear and belief is they don't just sit there. They'll nod you, they'll nag at you, and they'll push you into action. Well, I tell you what, I was pretty freaked out. And at that time, I was still just a priest in the, in the uh, Aaronic priesthood. And I knew that I didn't have the priesthood power to cast out demons uh, because that's something that in the Mormon churches, well, you know, it's um, reserved for the Melchizedek priesthood. So I actually went about uh, getting myself ordained elder in the Melchizedek priesthood, um, specifically so that I would have the power to defend myself if I got attacked by evil spirits again. But that was a long time ago for Seth. Now he tackles the fear of the unknown with a quite different tool. He studied it. And now when he has this experience, he sees something very different. Because instead of looking down and seeing a demon in my chest, I've woken up, felt the same initial, um, you know, impression, and then thought, oh, sleep paralysis, this is kind of interesting. And then I just sat down and kind of observed my state of mind. I didn't need to have fear because by then I had knowledge. Knowledge is a tool against fear. That's a good idea. Not that Seth is completely sure about everything. I don't know that spirits don't exist. Okay, so I have to admit the possibility, maybe I really was attacked by evil spirits, but I do know that sleep paralysis exists, and it sounds like what I experience could be explained by sleep paralysis. So I just have to ask myself, what's more likely, that I suffered from a known condition that actually does happen in people that we do know really exists, or that there's an invisible man out there sitting on my chest, you know, and then when I think about Jesus, he just disappears a couple seconds later. And who's the last guy on our panel that you would expect to have a supernatural experience like this? Well, if you said Randy Snyder, you are correct. It's 1994. I'm serving my mission in Arizona Tempe Mission, and I happen to be called to the Salt River Reservation. And when you're on a mission on a reservation... The members love telling stories about skinwalkers, about Hoofy the devil, who was bottom half of his body was goat, top half of his body he was in like a tuxedo or a suit, and was very charming, and you had to be careful because he was so charming. And so you hear all this folklore, and one evening uh, we went to bed, and I still remember I had the bed that was facing down the hallway, and my companion was in the bed deeper into the room. And I had, that night, for whatever reason, we had the door open in our bedroom so I could see down the hallway. And I wake up, and I'm paralyzed. I cannot move, but I can move my eyes. And I look down the hallway, the foot of my bed, and this gray cloud, this, this almost organic cloud, 
I can see it in the hallway and it starts to come closer to me and closer to me. And I'm just filled with terror um, because I can't move. And this thing that I don't know what it is exactly is coming towards me. And then in my paralyzed state, this amorphous organic cloud coalesce above my body and the terror increases. And at that very top point of that cloud, exactly where my face is, all of a, all of a sudden, this twisted evil filled with contempt, like it just hates me to the core, face is right above me. And I could just feel it, it was just like the Joseph Smith story. I would, it was like I couldn't speak, I couldn't move, and I was scared out of my mind. And I tried to do what I was taught. If you're ever confronted by an evil spirit, you raise your hand to the square and you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave. And I couldn't move, I couldn't speak. And so in the height of my panic, I mustered all the energy that I had in my whole soul, my whole body, and just went, and and it's boom, it disappeared. I sat up and I looked over at my companion. He went, kind of grunted, rolled over and went back to sleep. (laughs) And I was convinced that I was attacked by a demon. I don't, I don't, think that I thought it was Satan himself because there's so many sons of perdition, but I honestly felt like I had been attacked. And for Randy the believer, this was proof in the existence of God and everything that he had ever been told. That was like proof that the church was true. I told that story so many times in like Sunday school to to the youth, not Sunday school, but like priesthood, you know, teaching the 16 year olds and stuff just to make them have a sense that it was, you know, this is real and this is serious and Satan wants to stop us. This experience of night terror, sleep paralysis is sometimes called the old hag syndrome, but not every example of sleep paralysis includes visions or hallucinations. Andrew Spriggs talks about a time when he was very interested in lucid dreaming. And so he would take his body through a process to put himself into a hypnagogic state, one more conducive to lucid dreaming. And so one of these things is like the uh, hypnagogic or hypnopompic state, or I I mean, I don't, I don't really know all the science behind it, but um, it's, it's, I don't know really how to describe it, but it's kind of, if you've ever uh, caught yourself dozing off or something and then you find a sensation of yourself falling or of a kind of a vibration in your head or something like that that's the kind of uh state where you're still conscious but you you have a, a different uh, you have different brain waves or whatever and so it's really great for falling into lucid dreams so one of the ideas is you uh if you want to have a lucid dream you wake up say an hour or two before you have to actually do anything, get up, do something for 30 minutes, and then go back to sleep, you'll hit that kind of, you know, state of consciousness and you'll, you know, have, you'll be more likely to have lucid dreams. The problem is that this kind of state of consciousness comes with a lot of other issues. So 
um, neurologically what's happening is that uh, at some point uh, when you hit the rapid eye movement, rim, sleep, or whatever, uh, your body and your muscles and all that kind of stuff, they stop. And so this is how things are supposed to work. If this doesn't happen, that's why you sleepwalk, because your your body hasn't been stopped. So uh, uh, sleepwalking is basically the problem where your mind is asleep, your body is awake. But there's a problem when the opposite is occurring, where you're awake, but your body is still asleep. And that is sleep paralysis in a nutshell. So essentially, your mind is awake, but your body is asleep. Uh, wouldn't that be a good thing? What's the problem with that? The problem is that from your head, when you're actually experiencing it, it feels way worse, terrible than it actually objectively may be. So, for example, in the threads that I had, I would describe it to people, you know, to try to get them to see if they would have a, a similar experience. And it's like the most morbid description. Uh, let's see, one post I had is, um, let's see, let me look for this. Uh, it, it, you feel incredibly hot and it feels like a weight is pressing down all over and that you must somehow break forth from that weight to awaken. You feel like you're about to expire, as if there's a countdown, and you have to struggle to get past this super-pressured uh, container that your body is in. But every moment that you spend fighting against this super-pressured environment, you feel like you're using more energy, and you can't breathe. So you're about to expire, you can't breathe, you're trying to get out of it, and um, you wonder what would happen if the, the timer counted down, what would happen if you didn't actually get out of this? And so it's really scary. It feels like you're about to die. All right. So all these uh, old hags and demons and, and uh, clowns and, and all these things that people are seeing, it's just a, a waking dream, right? Well, I, I, as I was thinking about the topic and uh... this is Brian Johnston. Brian joined Andrew and I for this discussion about night terrors and sleep paralysis. I, I, I sort of think, like, going past whether trying to figure out, like, is this really a demon or not a demon, or is this just psychological? Or, I mean, you can talk about what it is or, or how it happens, but I, uh, I, I think having had some of these experiences makes me think a lot about perception and the nature of our conscious mind and reality and how a lot of times it's like, do we really know what is happening or have correct memories of things that, that, that happen? And um, I'm not sure exactly where to go with that, but, you know, it, it's sort of like these, these experiences happen, like they're commonly reported. People have these kind of experiences. That's sort of established, but then the stories people make about them, I find so fascinating, like whether it's a demon or more in the modern world, you know, the materialist world where we have to have some kind of physics or biochemical explanation for everything. But they're, they're all like processes of building stories about the story that our brain constantly makes of all the sensory input that we have going on, whether we're in the middle of the day awake or 
you know, it's asleep at night, churning through things. So, Brian, it sounds like you want to focus more on the experience itself, or at least the perception of the experience, and less on the mechanics of the the neurological processes that are uh, happening in the individual. Is that We're, right? We get, I think, in our modern world, so focused on having everything have this sort of mechanical materialist chemical kind of explanation we use the word just a lot like well you had that dream but that was just your brain misfiring or whatever you know to to reduce the complexity and richness of what it is to experience all the wacky things it is that human beings experience well wacky serious whatever you want to call them uh, but yeah i mean if you want to analyze it psychologically i think it tells us a lot about what's going on inside of us you know it, it, when you interpret it as a demon or a devil you know it's just sort of like these fears or if you get control of it you know and you're in a lucid dreaming state it seems to sort of tell the story of having kind of confidence and power over your own reality um it's just a lot of cool stuff i think well um this is actually something interesting because um it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem as as you hear about it where if you presume that the belief system comes before the experience and the belief system is what is uh, how we uh, process those experience, then it's kind of like one of the questions you asked earlier. Uh, you didn't have that belief in, you know, you didn't have that idea that it could be the devil, so you didn't interpret it that way. Well, the, the one thing that I, I've seen in, in all my reading is that there are cultures across the world who have these very similar explanations of it. It's like, it's not like they're talking to each other. And then once they've talked to each other, then they all decide, oh yeah, it's a hack. It's these cultures independently coming up with this explanation. And so I don't know why that is. I don't know why it is that some people experience it. And the clearest explanation to them is a presence, the devil, a hag, something like that. But it seems to be something that people experience and, um, I don't really know how to say or how to explain what the belief does because I'm not even sure that it's that the belief does something. It may be that the experience is what creates that belief or the experience it what is what reinforces that belief. Yeah, and we put different skins on it in a sense with, you know, like having different labels or different imagery. Uh, but I think, I guess what I like what I don't want to lose is the richness of the fact that we all have something that hunts us in our dreams. You know, it may come out as a demon, a hag, or a djinn, or the devil, but there is actually something that hunts us in our dreams. Now, the dream world may just be made up in our minds, but I, I just find that really fascinating, and I, and I hate to lose the richness of trying to over-simplify and... And, and brush it away by well it's it's just that i don't want to just it to death well i don't want to try to just this to death but um one thing i would say is um that you really can explain the sort of phenomenon of externalizing this or having the sense of it being external and then explain it from a neurological or a psychological or whatever kind of perspective. And so the fact that there are so many people who have this common experience of something coming after them. And, you know, with that conversation, I would say I have experienced sleep paralysis a lot, but 
the experience of something coming after me never has rung true for me. So whenever I read about this common experience of a hag, I'm like, well, that's kind of different for me. But I understand those symptoms. For me, I relate this to things like out-of-body experiences, astral projection, lucid dreaming, um, that hypnagogic state. Because all of these things have this similar neurological background that is associated with things like experiencing uh, another presence or experiencing uh, uh, this kind of uh, bodily, bodily sensation. So the fact that there are these different stories, we don't have to say that's just because, you know, that's neurology. But we should probably recognize that there are neurological backgrounds to that, and we should probably study those things. Good idea. So that helps us understand sleep paralysis a little better. But what about this scary Ouija board thing that Matt was looking at? How does that work? So what's the explanation to the Ouija board? Well, there's something called idiomotor movements. These are essentially micro-movements, small little movements that aren't perceived by the brain or the muscles because they're not intentional. Uh, the same thing can happen if you hold a thread with a paper clip or a needle. Uh, the homemade pendulum will swing because it's being moved. Pregnant women will often use this method to see if they're having a boy or a girl. It's a good way to test what the person holding the thread thinks the baby will be, not what they want it to be. That hand that's holding the thread is moving, even though the brain and the arm isn't trying to make it move, and even if the person doesn't perceive it moving. The Ouija board's the same thing. The answers are what the people on the board think will happen. So their micro-movements move the planchette to an answer. A good way to test this out on the Ouija board is to use a blindfold. At our Ouija board night, we didn't use a blindfold, but we did other experiments. We asked questions that only people that weren't touching the board knew. And every time, the answer was wrong. We used these types of techniques in order to show that when the people who were touching the board could guess about an answer, there would be an answer. Yes, no... But when we asked specifics about something the people on the board had no idea about, we ended up with a jumbled mess. What was interesting is after we went through using the Ouija board and explained how the Ouija board works, a couple people talked about how they felt. It's pretty much what I suspected was the truth. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't real, but I was still a little creeped out, you know, because of all the stories I've been told. So, yeah, I'm, those are pretty, totally dispelled. So, so you feel now going for, going forward, if you you don't have the same feelings that you did before about a Ouija board? Right, you're right. I, I don't. I had a lot of uneasiness beforehand about it. I wouldn't say I was scared because, you know, for me, you know, like, yeah, because because I'm a tough guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but for me, like, what I was surprised, like, you know, I didn't have any, like, dark feelings. I didn't feel, you know, like there was something evil going on. And I kind of expected those things to happen. Even if nothing big or, or crazy happened, I expected that I'd have that same uneasiness or sort of, like, darkness. But I didn't feel any of that at all. So I, I was actually surprised by that. I even got one more just so you know from my wife. But this one was, just so you know, you can bring the Ouija board back in the house and let the kids play with it if they want to. While I was talking to Jody, she brought up my wife, and that even she didn't want it played in her house. I told Jody about my wife's conversion, and that now that she had seen how it works and 
learned about what makes it tick, that she doesn't need to be afraid because she had actual experience. And I asked her whether or not that would be something of value in order to confront her fears. Well, I I think what you said really doesn't take away because I I, I believe what you bring to the Ouija board, if, if it's coming from a place of fear, but you do believe there's something to it, you you can create that something bad and so I, I mean maybe it was a safe place and you were joking and laughing and stuff but I just I still I don't care where that fear came from I'm not ready to to play with the Ouija board so why don't we wrap this up with a bit of a panel discussion Starting with Jesse, as he reflects on some of the things that he heard earlier in the recording. If there was one fear element that tied everything together, I think it was a fear of kind of an unknown negative supernatural force that, that everybody seemed to, to kind of share. So what Micah said, what Rand, you know, Randy's story... The things that Jody was afraid of, uh, the other people. That, I mean, even when something when something goes wrong, that we don't know exactly how to attribute it. It's. It, I think it's just so easy to attribute it to this. You know, call it a devil, call it a old hag or an evil spirit or whatever you will. But this negative supernatural force, um, and I think that's just a, a universal human tendency to do that. Yeah, I think. You know, one of the best comments came from Seth uh, during Matt's interview with him that when he had knowledge, the fear went away. Well, that's what I was thinking about is what you do when you are scared. If, you know, to to go search something in the night, uh, in the dark with a flashlight, and then it ends up being a dog or, uh, you know, something scratching at the window, uh, a tree or pipes or something, and then, oh, I don't need to be scared. So it, it is kind of shining the light on, on what is real, uh, whereas you were in the dark and, and trying to determine what, uh, you know, what unknowable entity is out there. What were, what were some of the things that you were most afraid of as a kid? To me as a kid, the things I was most afraid of, afraid of were things from the unseen world um, because I was taught about demons and, and uh, taught about Satan. And, uh, you know, the billions of, of uh, minions that he has out there to try to destroy us. And it's really difficult. I mean, what tools do you have to fight against an unseen, um, you know, uh, threat? And, and what, you know, it's really unclear, really. I mean, they don't get into details what kind of powers they have. So those kind of things scared the shit out of me as a kid. But but I think I mean you asked a good question. What what tools did you have to overcome those you know demons or, or or whatever? Because I think I think we are taught what to do to avoid ever having to encounter them, or, or what to do if you ever do encounter them. Yeah, I I hear people say those sorts of things even now at church. Like, well, we don't want to we don't want to talk too much about the devil because that could you know, in, invite him in. Um, I, I don't know. It was, I never, I always had a hard time growing up with the whole demon aspect or, or even Satan 
being real, that was always, it never really clicked with me. I was, I never internalized it as much as like you're saying you did, Randy. Um, for me, the things that I was afraid of, like spiritually, I always just thought it was some negative part of me that I, like some intrinsic part of me that I had to dig out and root out and, and somehow get that out of myself. And that if I, if I gave into things, that was like a weakness that I had inside of me, but I never really felt like there was this external force that was, you know, pushing on me or influencing me. So I never, I never used a Ouija board or anything like that, but, um, I would have, I probably would have if other people had, because I, I wouldn't have taken it that seriously. Yeah, I definitely echo what exactly what what Jesse's saying. I didn't. This idea of the supernatural was was all movie and myth, and and I don't know what what a, what to attribute that to. I did play with Ouija boards and um, those types of things, and I really considered it just a lark. I had no the 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 supernatural world was not a tangible thing for me. And it was exactly what Jesse said. It was fear of sin, uh, fear of uh, failure, uh, you know, school the next day, those types of, I was a worrier, but. Um, when you say fear of sin, what, what was that? Well, <laughs> specifically. No, I don't, I don't mean, the spe- I don't mean the specific sins. I mean, what were you afraid of? What, like if, if you committed the sin, what would happen? What, what, where, where was the fear? You know, I remember being, f- being scared of dying in sin. So for me as a kid, especially as a teenager, it was constantly, it was this constant repentance. Like I had to repent. I had to take the sacrament. I had to do these things to be in a position. So if I died, I would, uh, I, I would be saved effectively. So I think that's where the fear was, is, is dying in my sin. Uh-huh. Well, I think I think maybe the difference between me and Matt and Jesse <clears throat> is that part of like my family folklore was when my dad and my mom were engaged, and the way that the narrative is told is that my dad and mom were getting a little too hot and heavy making out, and in the middle of the night, my mom was in bed and a demon. According to my mom, who, who's now dead, so she can't verify this, but uh, a demon showed up in the, middle, in the middle of the night in her room. And so she woke up, she saw a dark figure, and then she screamed, and the demon left. And my uncle uh, verifies this story by saying he, when he heard my mom scream, he ran down the hall, and he got knocked down by a you know, uh, figure. And then they... When, you know, when everything settled down, they went and saw that the doors were locked in the entire house from the outside. So they called the stake president, and he exercised all the demons. And this was like family folklore. This was told to me, as, you know, as early as I can remember. So to me, demons could come into your room and attack you. And if you didn't, you know, know what to do, who knows what could happen? What it comes down to for me is conditioning. Is, is that story, Chet's story, uh, Seth's story, they all had some, some experience or something to point to that conditioned them to attribute feelings to the supernatural. I, I really didn't. Other than maybe the Joseph Smith history story and the first edition story, I had nothing to point to uh, to think that that was a, a modern-day uh, phenomenon. And, and so I think conditioning uh, definitely plays, plays a role in, in fear, 
uh, as, as it relates to what we're talking about. Now, Glenn, are you just going to let that folklore comment slide? Yeah. Wasn't that a wasn't that a memorat or some other? Don't you have some other word for Randy's story that's not folklore? Yeah, but uh, we had one listener, Polly, say that she gets hot and bothered every time I use folklore terms. You know, it t- kind of turns her on. I was going to say, like, in a good so, way, hot and bothered? Yeah, so I, I kind of... I, I think I should probably avoid that. Okay, you know, for the sake of the point. listeners. For the sake of the listeners, I don't want to... I, I don't want to pull a Howard Stern here. Man, even our listeners are nerdy. Yeah. I was, I was most afraid of losing the spirit. Like, I remembered... What, I remember when I was about 14, I had this really strong experience where I felt like I had cleansed myself. Like, I felt like I had, I, I was on this really righteous streak, and I remember feeling really good about it. And then after that, every time I would do something, I would think back. Remember how I felt back when I was being, you know, really, really good? And, it, I mean, even if if there was a commercial or something on TV that I was watching with my family that was offensive or sexual or something, I would get up and walk out of the room. This was for like a couple months that I was just on this kick. And then, you know, the whole rest of my teenage years, I remembered just being, feeling guilty and feeling afraid when I couldn't live up to that, that same standard. And what were you afraid of? Like what, what did you think would happen? Losing the spirit. Like I was afraid that when the spirit wasn't there, that I couldn't control myself. I couldn't make the right decisions. I didn't know what truth was. I, I couldn't discern anything, you know, that I was just going to be lost, basically. So your life would just spin out of control? Yeah, pretty much. You know, we, we've been talking about a lot of supernatural fears, but I think, I think there's a lot of fear-based messages in the church growing up in natural things and very innocent, you know, things that would today seem to be very innocent, like a cup of coffee, you know? So if you follow Matt's logic earlier, that he was afraid that he would somehow be struck down in his sins, you know, and and we have this belief that drinking coffee is against the word of wisdom. You know, if you, if you take a drink of coffee and then on the drive home, you're hit by a car you die in your sins. You know, doesn't that instill in you a fear of something as as innocent as a cup of coffee? Ah, oh, without a doubt. What What are some other things like that? That uh, you know, I, I and and I was watching a, a documentary last night called "This Divided State." I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's uh, it, it's about the time that Michael Moore came to UVSC and then they brought in Sean Hannity to kind of balance it out. I think it was two thousand four. Uh, elections about this time eight years ago and there were several comments about the world like fear of the world you do, you know you want Orem City to be a haven against the world you don't want to bring someone who represents the world like Michael Moore into this area to kind of pollute it and there was another comment by a guy saying that he never wanted to leave Utah because he didn't he knew it was out there in the world, and he didn't want any part of it. Yeah, so this is a big one for me. Um, I recorded a listener essay for the Mormon Expression Essay Contest um, where I spliced in a bunch of audio from the movie Tangled. Um, I don't know if you guys have listened to that or not, but I, yeah. I, I 
I compared it to, you know, being stuck in the tower, like Rapunzel was stuck in the tower. So that exactly what you're describing, Glenn, of people being afraid of the outside world and then people kind of retreating and like, you know, getting to the point where they, they say, well, I don't ever want to leave, you know, what I have. I don't want to ever go anywhere else. Um, where people become so safe and insular in what they have that they're just afraid of, of going outside of it. Um, and I think ultimately that's just a, a method of, of an institution exploiting people by keeping them in constant fear of what's outside. Like in the song, ruffians, thugs, and thieves, and you know, men with pointy teeth, and all these nasty things that, that, that her mom would tell her were scary things outside that she should avoid. Right. And, and to what end, Jesse, would church leaders or teachers exploit this fear? Well, what's, what's the reason for it? Well, I think it reinforces institutional control that if, you, if you're going to leave the church, then you're not going to have anything else out there. You have no support if they tell you, you know, you shouldn't have too many non-member friends. You should go to BYU. You should marry someone who's, uh, you know, a lifelong member um, and get married in the temple. I mean, your whole life is going to be tied up with the church, which means if you get to the point where a lot of us have gotten to, uh, where you're looking at the church differently, it's it's very 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 difficult to leave. It's you can't just unplug and walk out. It's not it's not physically possible to just do that without you know ripping the tree up by the roots and having there be a lot of collateral damage. And at that point, they've already characterized you. You know they've created a narrative around what those kind of people have done or or what would lead someone to do that. And the narrative is, you know, they've sinned. They've been offended they've committed adultery there's some there's some kind of problem there with you it's not just that you know you've made a choice so it it it, it's pressure from both sides it's pressure on the person you know for their own reasons but it's also pressure from from other people in terms of how they're going to look at you if you if you make a life change yeah matt matt let, let me ask you and then i'll ask you randy it's kind of the same question what what do you think um is the purpose of using fear-based tactics in the, the teachings? Well, the purpose of it is it's effective. It's incredibly effective. Um, Did you say so infective that, or effective? No, I, I think I, I was uh, swallowing at the same time. No, it's effective. <laughs> um, so that's the purpose of it, is it's one of the strongest motivators. And, uh, and motivators to keep people... Uh, in the church or uh, towing the line or doing what they tell them to do. If you can um, create uh, others, right? That's a lost reference. You can create the others and uh, they are the boogeymen and everything associated with them uh, is bad. Then your people are going to avoid that like the plague. And, and I experienced that still where, where my life is very, is not very different than it was when I was in the church. I still, uh, you know, 80 to 90% of, of my day, of the hours of my life, are spent exactly the same. Work, family, uh, you know, a little exercise, a lot of TV, uh, these types of things. Basically, three hours a week, I don't go to church. That's the biggest change in my life. And yet, my family and some of my friends 
are fearful of my kids. What is going to happen to your kids? Yet nothing we teach them is 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 really all that different. Um, and, and but they have been able to instill this fear into my family and my friends that somehow uh, it's going to be catastrophic uh, for us. And they can't explain why. And I try to ask them, well, what's how am I different? What's different? And and nobody can point to it because it is this unknown. Well, Matt, you've got tattoos, and 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 I saw your wife yesterday, and she had a tank top on. So she also has a three tattoos. Yes, so. she has tattoos too. So you know that's pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Randy? You know, keeping things vague keeps the fear of the unknown sort of a boogeyman. Uh, so they teach the slippery slope um, fallacy. And they don't get too specific. You don't think they get too specific? I think they get pretty specific a lot of times. Okay, well, how specific do they get? Do they say that you're going to swing? Do they say that you're going to, uh, you know, use heroin? Well, specific is is don't get a second pair of earrings. Yeah, yeah. Well, they get specific. No, I'm not talking about the requirements. I'm I'm talking about what are the consequences. They. Do they ever really get that specific about the consequences? Well, there's the there's the case of the cautionary tale. I mean, there's there's people who I've known who have left the church and their families have fallen apart. They've you know committed adultery. They've become alcoholics. They've you know whatever bad things have happened to them, and then they become that cautionary tale. So it can be specific in so far as, hey, you know that guy. This is what happened to him after he left the church. I hear that quite a bit. Or it can be, you know, ambiguous, like what Jesse said, his fear of losing the spirit and what would happen, uh, just kind of lose control. I mean, that, that's pretty vague. I think, if you leave, I think if you leave things to the imagination, the imagination can run a lot further than specifics can. So, yeah, they do have these cautionary tales. There was a video uh, that showed a guy watching porn, and the next thing you know, he loses his family. Um, you know, he's just a total degenerate. Um, but it, you know, well, there, there's a value to the church to keep things vague, you know, to, if you start to sin, you'll have doubt. Satan comes in and who knows what could happen. Well, at the end of the day, the consequence, the specific consequence is you will not be with your family in eternity. You will not have your family, um, uh, forever. And that's the kind of the death nail or the ultimate consequence that, they are always holding over your head. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I think there are quite a uh, quite a few specifics, and some of those are anecdotal, like uh, Jesse said. But there's also specific antidotes to this fear. You know, wearing garments. If if you go through the temple and get your endowment, you know, if if you stay worthy, you take the sacrament every week. If you read your scriptures every day, if you pray, you know, there's all these specific things that you're supposed to do for your safety. And and that's really where I see the function of of this fear, that it, it drives you back to do the institutional behaviors that that really define you as part of the group. You know, it's interesting. I was I was just I was just observing a uh, ceiling yesterday of a family member and the sealer. He, he was very long-winded, but he, he said, I, I really want to give you three pieces of advice for your marriage. And if you do these three things, you will be successful. You will be happy. Mm-hmm. 
pray together every day, attend your church meetings, yeah. and pay your tithing. Yeah. And I wanted to yell out, are you f- kidding me? These, this is a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old kid who are getting ready to get married, and that's the best you got, Mr. Octogenarian? F- you. That's how, uh, that's how I felt. Well, he, he's completely equipped them with no tools to go forward in a marriage that should never have happened because they're both too young. Right. right. Well, well my, who knows about that? My, my <laughs> advice was sleep naked every once in a while. And I guarantee you, if they follow what I said, they're going to be a little more successful in their marriage than doing the three <laughs> things that that guy told them to do. So, Glenn, if I understand what you're saying, then you think that the purpose of the fear in the institution is to, is to drive people towards more of the prophylactic activities? Yeah, I mean, when, when you say purpose, uh, I mean, I think purpose implies a pretty conscious um, choice. And I don't know that there's necessarily that conscious choice, but I, I think the function of the, the fear-based messages is to, um, to, to, to drive the behavior, yeah. Well, so, you know, we did a podcast on guilt. Is the church, does the church use fear or guilt more in order to um, affect people? I don't think the church has to use guilt. I think guilt is so self If you teach people that something is wrong, guilt just imposes itself. And then as soon as people don't feel that that behavior is wrong anymore... It, the guilt just goes away. So, I mean, as soon as so fear, as soon as I fear precedes fear precedes guilt. Absolutely. And then, if you, like with 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 fear, that once you gain knowledge, not only will the f- fear go away, but the guilt will go away as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, like the the gospel is called the good news, and the reason it's called the good news is because Jesus has this atonement thing that gets gets rid of your sins and you in death you're able to be resurrected and you can live with people that's great news that's good news you should have hope yeah i mean that's kind of the core message but then there's all this fear-based stuff around it because we don't want people to feel too good about this good news because then they might go off the rails we got to keep them in check and you don't you don't ever want to feel too comfortable you don't want to get complacent well, we're we're currently a week away from a presidential election, and this this idea of fear, as we've been talking about it and preparing for this, keeps coming up with with all the dark music, uh, TV ads, and and radio ads. Be fearful of the other guy, and and it's such a such a tool in politics and in uh, as well as religion. That's Obviously, it's effective, even though everybody says, oh, I hate those negative ads. Uh, people buy into it and, and just be on Facebook for a little bit and see how fearful um, one side is to the other guy. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely use it as a tactic in politics, but I think that fear thrives more in an environment where there's ignorance. Like, if you don't know anything about international relations or politics, you're going to be more attracted to the candidate who scares you and tells you that the sky is falling rather than the candidate that, you know, offers kind of a, more of a, of a structure or is, is more policy-based, if that makes sense. 
Well, that makes perfect sense because the church, uh, you know, one of their uh, prime operatives is to keep the members as ignorant as possible about right. their own history and about um, issues involving Mormonism and then instill fear. And so the combination of fear and ignorance, uh, you know, creates this perfect um, recipe to control the masses. Right. Your, your, baby, your baby dies. Your baby dies without being baptized. You're done. I did want to ask one other thing on fear and something that Chet brought up um, and, and that, that a couple people brought up is how much we like to be scared. I mean, we're, we're at the time of the year in Halloween where these uh, these very elaborate haunted houses and they're getting more and more involved. Um, you know, we like to be scared. We love the scary movies. And so how do we reconcile that? Well, that's that's really easy, Matt. I mean, adrenaline is fight or flight response. And so you get a rush of adrenaline in your system and, you know, it excites you. It heightens your senses, and especially when there's no real threat um, of, you know, actually dying, it, you know, it creates a, an artificial, I mean, actually, it's, a, it's an artificially induced natural high. Sort of like this podcast. I hope you enjoyed our exploration of fear today, and we hope you join us next time when we talk about something else. It should go without saying, but we do this because we like it. And the main thing that keeps us coming back is the feedback we get from you, the listener. Comment on our webpage at infantsonthrones.com. Like us on Facebook and stay up to date with our bonus content. Review us on iTunes and help our audience grow. We don't want your money, just your love. So, anyone for the closing prayer? When the cryptos creak and the tombstones quake, ghosts come out for a swinging way. Happy haunts materialize. exactly how I remember it. Now, I'm, I say all these things, all these memories I share, because I've read too much on the fallibility of memory and confabulation, I say all this with a humility that this is how I remember it. I'm not sure exa- if it's exactly how it happened. You can be as humble and self-defecating, is that right, as you want. <laughs> Don't be self-defecating. But uh, <laughs> self-defecating. <laughs> I should have put. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what happens when you're full of shit. <laughs>